of all, I just want to welcome everyone to the Genetic Engineering and Society Center's weekly seminar. We're going to get started now. Uh, we meet recording in progress. There we go. We meet every Tuesday from 12 to 1 at Poe, um, building in the room 202. And you, our podcast and the video recording of these weekly seminars are also available online. So for those that can't join us in person, or currently, as we're live streaming, they're still able to catch a glimpse of this, of uh, the seminar series. So welcome everybody here. And I would like to give a special welcome to Mr. Julius Tillery. I'm very excited to present today's colloquium speaker. Um, he is a fifth generation African-American farmer from Northampton County, Northeastern North Carolina, and his uh, who produces cotton, soybeans, and leafy greens on his 125 acre family farm. He founded the Decor and Accessories Company Black Cotton in 2016. Please let me know if I get anything wrong. Okay, so far so good. Okay, and, and he will talk to us today about the origin of his company's tagline, Cotton is our culture, and why the production of cotton is important to be known in the marketplace. And another tagline that I've heard from past interviews is also rebranding cotton. So I'm interested in hearing I'm very curious to hear about what that means as well. I think we're in for a great treat today. Aside from Julius's entrepreneurial business role, he is a rural economic development advocate. He was a member of the Conservation Fund's Resourceful Communities Program, which, which works to preserve the state's rural landscape, especially in communities that are economically and socially distressed. He also serves on the Administration Council for Southern Sayre Sustainable Agriculture Resource and Education. And he is, uh, he is part of the Black Family Land Trust, which is dedicated to the preservation and protection of African-American uh, farmers and other historically underserved landowners. And Julius is a graduate from the NC, State, NC School of Science and Math and received his bachelor's in economics from UNC Chapel Hill. So I just want to put a personal note. I met Julius Tillery. I don't know if you remember this. This was uh, along with a group of NC State faculty um, and GES-affiliated uh, faculty in the summer of 2019. And we were fortunate to engage in conversation with you one afternoon. Um, and you talked to us about your journey with Black Cotton. And we got to visit what I would call your artist studio. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you call that also your store and your office. There's many different names. And we got to see the product in person. And we got to have a great conversation with you that summer. And I thought your message was important for students to hear because I felt that what you talked about was a very inspiring story. It was a lot of positivity about creating this market niche. And I really wanted uh, students to be able to hear that. And not only I, but many other students and faculty actually, last semester when we asked, who would you like to hear come here and come to colloquium, your name was brought up. So we're so excited to have you here. We hope that this summer we'll get to come and visit your family farm and also learn more about it with our AgBioFuse students. So without further ado, because I'm talking to so much, <laughs> and there's really a lot to talk about with you, I would like to welcome Mr. Julius Tillery and remind all of those that are online and in person that you will be able to have the last 20, 25 minutes of the colloquium to ask him questions. So thank you for coming and I'm gonna just save the, share the screen to your presentation. Great, thank you. Mm -hmm. 
I hope you all do not mind, but for this presentation, I'm going to allow you all to see my face. Sub-Zero Unnest. <laughs> my name is Julius Tillery. I'm the founder of BlackCotton.us, and our tagline of our business is Cotton is Our Culture. Another tagline we like to say is Black Cotton is the New Rose because it's just as fashionable but lasts forever. We have a few taglines. I try to be cool with cotton. And as you see in this, my profile picture on Facebook and on Instagram, I try to be cool in pictures promoting our cotton. People on the internet call me the Puff Daddy of Cotton. I think it's a very cool name because I'm inspired by Sean Puffy P. Diddy, Diddy Combs. Or is it love now? But love. But anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm truly inspired by him and the, um, the, the movement he created with Bad Boy. You know, to have some of the hottest artists to be known as, uh, as the king of the... What do you call himself? The, uh, the person, that, the inventor of the remix? What about that? It's somewhat remix he did, but he's big with remixes. And I feel like I'm remixing cotton. You know, I'm a fifth-generation cotton farmer, as I explained, which started in Tillery, North Carolina. Any, any of you ever heard of Tillery, North Carolina? If you're from the Roanoke Valley, you may have seen that name. Well, my family descended from Tillery, North Carolina, and um, now we live in uh, Bryantown, where my farm is at. And this, this grave right here, Reverend D.L. Tillery, he bought the very first part of our family farm um, he was born in 1871, so he was born after the Emancipation Proclamation, so he was my very first freeborn family member. Him and his son, they lived in Tillery, North Carolina, so he was born in Tillery, his son was born in Tillery, North Carolina, and they decided to move to where our current farm stands, so he bought the very first plot of our family farm, so that's the first generation. And my grandfather is the third generation family farmer, and he was the first person born in our family farm. And that's truly important because for the Tilleries from Bryantown, we really don't connect very much with Tillery. We're very deeply ingrained into Bryantown, North Carolina. But that's the history uh, where our, our ancestry came from. Our name. We're from the Tillery Plantation. We're descendants of that. And, you know, Halifax County has a deep history in America. And I feel proud to be, a part, be from Halifax County because we're the first county that said that we was going to be an independent nation. Now, as a, a descendant of slavery, sometimes we feel like maybe we wasn't a part of that. However, I feel like in my blood, my, my uh, ancestors, they was a part of the whole system because, you know, when our people was working the lands, they had influence too. No matter, no matter what situation was going on, the people who does the work has influence, just like in the cotton game. We have a lot of influence, you know, black people. We have, you know, we tell the story of how we picked the land, we built the, built, the, built the country up with our work, but we still have influence. We're the, you know, the tastemakers of our nation. If you look at Beyonce, Jay-Z, Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, Oprah Winfrey, don't you think what they wear makes any influence? You know, uh, you know, I feel like us black people, we have to be able to connect to cotton. And for so long, we every time we thought of visuals of us cotton, with cotton, we thought of her. Pain, you know, uh, anguish, you know, slavery. However, this thought process of seeing us in a cotton field, smiling, laughing, having a good time while working, mind blowing. But why does it have to be this way? Why do we have to keep this, hold on to ancient perspectives, in my opinion? I feel like as a people, we can only move forward when we set ourselves in what is truly the present and how do we make the present a gift? to move forward. Doesn't that sound cool, y'all? I'm the Puff Daddy Cotton. <laughs> home team. So something I really embrace with our black cotton business is the home team. 
Our business is based out of the Roanoke Valley, North Carolina. I'm very proud that our county, Northampton County, is the number two producer of cotton in the state. The number one producer and county of cotton in the state is Halifax County, right beside each other. The Roanoke Valley is king of cotton in North Carolina. What has that meant for us? Not much, to be honest. I mean, we're the poorest region in the state. If you, if you don't have a reason to come to northeastern North Carolina, you probably won't make one unless you're truly interested in ag, uh, you know, biotech, ag engineering. You know, if you're really interested in cotton, then you'll come to our area. But if you're interested in other, being a policymaker, we're very ignored. So this business, the home team, is focused on black people from a black community working in a black town with a black mayor, with black commissioners, black police. We want people to understand cotton business can be ran by black people too. So as you see, some of my people that work with me are young black people, something you wouldn't imagine. Maybe our parents wouldn't imagine. Young black people want to be interested in cotton enough to work in the industry, to create a product and promote cotton. Yes, it's true. And we do it in our office in Garysburg, North Carolina. So what do we do? We make cool products. We make reefs. We make jewelry. We make vase arrangements. We make things that you, we can put in your hand. Why do we make these products? I'm going to give you the truth. When I first started BlackCotton.us, I wanted to create a business where my cotton, the cotton that came off my farm, had a purpose and it was important. Typically, in a conventional cotton farmer's life, all of our cotton gets mixed up. Our cotton is no different than any other cotton. And if, if, if our cotton is no different than any other cotton, it's no different than China cotton, India cotton. However, what goes on in China and India? Do you think they have combines picking that cotton? That's a serious question here. Now, from what my knowledge is of the area, and I, I've never been over there and seen that process, but supposedly, a lot of what we consider the cotton industry of slavery days, which is not the days of today, or even sharecropping, that's current right now in Asia and India. You know, literally, instead of having a combine, which these expensive million-dollar or half-million-dollar pieces of equipment that we take for granted that goes out to these cotton fields and pick all the cotton, they send a 1,000 people out there and pick pick the cotton, and they make less than a dollar a day. Did you think the industry was like, still like that? No way, right? Especially us in America that see our cotton business. You know, when you think about our industry, you're thinking, wow, it's a lot of money in it. It's a lot of smart people and it's a lot of tech in it. But the number one and number two, um, two nations that run the cotton industry in our world, they still sending people out there to handpick their cotton. They still doing the same. And it gets worse after the cotton is picked. When you're talking about in the processing uh, centers where the, uh, the cotton is turned into yarn, it's even worse. Where, the, where we make our shirts at, the textile process. And I'm just a simple cotton farmer. However, I know that these processes and what goes into making our clothing is not something we're proud of. That's why these, uh, we know we have these niche markets that are coming up right now in America. Organic cotton. You know, the whole made in the USA product. How many of you all wear made in U.S. products and feel a little better about it? Sometimes we do. And I feel like a lot of people do when they feel like they're getting a product made with integrity, they can they can utilize it and appreciate it much better. What is the true cost of cheap cotton? And see, we don't know. We really don't know because that's the system. And I couldn't just outright break the system and say, hey, I'm going to make a product and let people know that they can get their shirts from me. When I look investigated getting from 
you know, cotton bales to textiles, I was going to spend at least $100,000 just to even get started. Just spending that outside of, you know, having my cotton, my current RA business, but I had to spend an extra 100000 just to even get started. But to even thinking about making some money and scaling, you're talking about half a million dollars, million dollar business. I, and that's what has made all of our cotton the same. Cotton farmers don't want to take the risk, for the most part, to get into a, a, their own unique products. They just put it together. But in that system, all of our cotton is the same, so we value the same, which means we value it cheap. And what I want to do as the Puff Daddy Cotton is break that system for not just myself and my family and my community, for everybody's in this industry from America that has a dream that, hey, we can believe in something and separate ourselves from this cheap systems. Black business. You know, George Floyd and him passing away in this COVID period, it's been incredible on in our nation. And um, right now, being a black business is really good, you know, in regards to marketability. There's been a national racial awakening in our, in, our, in our country. And for a lot of black businesses, it's been good. It's, get, it's given us the attention that we've probably been craving for for a long time, even myself and uh while I'm in the home decor business right now, we're going through adjustments that we're going to level up and get to the next level of making products. I don't want to say which products yet because you may see them next year. But all I do want to tell you is being a black business right now, you know, we always are underserved in regards to finances and resources. However, the uniqueness and authenticity of our experience should matter to some people. It matters many times. It matters in media. But why doesn't it matter in our products? Maybe it do. And maybe that's the assumption I made when I started this business. But I believe through products like this and situations when I'm going out and vendoring and I tell my story, I believe the assumption that people care about my cotton from my cotton farm has been proven. I can go to, I can have a table like this and people will come by, want to look at the products, they want to buy. I actually had a guy come to my office yesterday. He um he has a job in Raleigh helping people move furniture. And he told me, he was like, Mr. Tillery, I'm so proud that I was with my job in Raleigh. I went to a house and moved some furniture and I saw in the house they had black cotton. You know, from our, our poor community don't have much business. For us to be able to see our little businesses everywhere else, it's mind-blowing and incredible. You know, that's really the one of the biggest reasons why I started Black Cotton is not that I want to make so much money for myself and be rich or anything, because, you know, that's like hitting the lottery. But what I wanted for myself and my child is for us to be able to have pride in what we're doing. For so many years, many people who farm don't have any pride in it. That's a term I, I, I created, burden farming. You know, your dad has a farm, your granddad has a farm, and when they're gone, now it's your burden. And I didn't want my son to look at our family farm as a burden. I didn't want my little cousins to look at my family farm as a burden. We wanted to make this farm worth something to us. Well, when we get up in the morning and we're doing it, we can say it's for a reason. Not just a dollar amount, but something that can give us pride. Or, you know, pride. And when I have people from my community working out different places and they say, man, I was just proud to see your product in someone's house. That's why I farm. That's why I want my children to farm. That's why I want the young generation to farm. You know, you think about the song, Old MacDonald Had a Farm. You know, MacDonald was proud that he had all the animals and he had all the things going on in his farm. It wasn't about MacDonald making riches off his farm. It was about he had it. And we want to be able to do these things. We want to produce our crops. We want to make the best crops and best livestock possible for our community. 
and to be able to have pride to say, hey, this is what how we serve in our community. Not just making a cheap product so that the big, you know, big business can make a profit off of whatever they're trying to market. Farming is much deeper than that. And that's what Black Cotton is trying to do. So I advocate, you know, you know, like advocate, but advocate. I speak up for farmers who look like myself. I speak up for farmers from my community. I speak up for my community that believe in us farmers. A lot of us poor, um, poor farmer communities, all we have is our land and what we can make off of it. And for many years and many, many decades, we didn't make much because somebody even owned the crop before, before we even can try to make something from it. So I took the risk because I believe in the young people. And just like here, I spoke to these young people about the opportunities in agriculture. For a long time, people who worked in agriculture was, must have been considered low educated. Oh, they don't, they don't have much education. They can't be too smart. They're working as a farmer. However, we know as people in this room who's watching this, the future in agriculture is bright. The future is very bright. The smartest people are inheriting their families' farms. You know, we are seeing very intelligent people in the agriculture industry now. We used to be the low on uh, the low education industry. Now we're the high education industry. You know, a lot of people have PhDs get into agriculture because they want to make a change and they want to see the change they want in the world through food and through the clothing and fibers we make. So one way that I get this spirit that I have to people who's interested is all for the Black Cotton Tour. Just like Don and the NC State um, crew of, of professors came down, I have people come by our farm. I host tours. I definitely like hosting tours of young people because one thing that I, I see that's really special to me is when a young person can get out into a rural space and just run free. Imagine being from an urban city where you've never been able to experience running freely and feeling like there's no nothing, no rules you're breaking because this person, this black person owned this land. Some black people never felt that, experienced that in their life. And I hope that with many uh, other urban people and people, people of color across the country, if you never felt the freedom and be able to say, hey, I can wander and explore freely without wondering if some oppressive system is going to shoot me, that's what we're doing, what we're doing. We want to be able to offer this space to people so they can be able to open their minds up to how we can come together and safe spaces. That's what agriculture needs to be in. That's what I'm advocating for, is for people to feel safe in agriculture, be able to feel like they can express themselves, you know, truly figure out why we're doing what we're doing. Why do we produce these crops? It's not just about making money. It's not even just about feeding ourselves. It's about how we bring the country together through this process, the jobs we create, the, the products we create, you know, the experiences we create with these products. Like with my business, Black Cotton, yes, we have home decor products, but to a lot of people, it's not about the home decor. It's about what they're seeing and feeling from the product. What is it making me feel? And that's what, you know, you in the future generation, what's the purpose of creating these crops now? Is it just for the end or the, is it the whole process of who's doing what throughout the whole process and what's being learned, what's being shown? Black Cotton is definitely something, not just cotton. And it's, it's more clever than being called black cotton because cotton's clearly not black. But when you put those two things together and you put the culture that's around cotton, all the history that's around it, the families that's been a part of it, and you tie that to where we're at today and the hopes and dreams and aspirations that we have and how we can see ourselves in the things that we make, 
That's what black cotton is. We want people to explore in their brains why we can come together and why we should support one another. When we wear certain shirts, sometimes we don't know all the heartbreak and suffering that goes into it. But when you buy a black cotton product, just know you bought a piece of the pride of Northampton and the Roanoke Valley region. Black fashion and black art. What we're going to do with cotton is we're going to make sure that people know that this cotton comes from our culture. We're not ashamed anymore, starting with black cotton. Now, we have to spread the message, but what we want you all to do is see proud, a proud community of people, starting with our black farmers, the ones who had to go out and put these seeds out. But it's going to spread out to all the people who serve by it, and we're going to see the beauty in being black and supporting black, the beauty that can come from unity, the unity that comes in black cotton. Original and authentic, even Governor Cooper likes it. That's my man. <laughs> That's the presentation. How am I making on time? You're good. You have five minutes, or we can... Stop for questions. We can stop for questions, but I'm stopping Governor Cooper. That's my man. But um, you know, but that's pretty much my presentation. You know, black cotton. We've taken the cotton off my family farm. But if you you sitting here listening to me today, you know it's much more than that. And if you go to Instagram at blackcotton.us, just scroll down and see the history. You know, um, we've been doing stuff for five years now, so you can see the planting process, you can see the maintaining the crops process, you can see the harvesting process, you can see the people who visit the farm and how they idolize it, you know, how they uh, and picture and um, picture, you know, cotton farming. We have a lot of modeling shoots. There's a lot of things we do with it. We use, we want to be creative with it, you know, like, um, I remember when we first started the business, my dad says, why are you bringing people to see nothing? And I said, man, to people who've never seen anything like this, we have everything to show them. So it's about changing the perspectives. And that's what we're doing with Black Cotton. It's more than just a seed. It's more than the end result. It's everything about how we unite around agriculture. Thank you for your time today. And now I'm ready for questions. Okay. Um, we have Thank you so much. That was really interesting. Um, if anyone uh, who's online would like to ask a question, um, use the raise your hand function, and uh, we'll call on you. And if anyone in the room would like to start, we have time to um, let have people online type their questions if they want to type a question. Uh, and I was just going to say, we do have one question online. Probably. Oh, yeah, I see it. Um, Eli, do you want to unmute yourself and ask the question? Uh, sure. We'll have to stop so, sharing. Um, oh, sorry. And I, uh, Julius went to math, I think, so just a shout out to another unicorn. Go unicorns. Um, yeah. Y'all didn't know that. Um, I just want to know what you think about uh, GMO and biotech cotton and how they fit into your view of all this. Okay, so... There's ideologies about which cotton is safer, but then there's also realities of production. And I could tell you this, as somebody who produces cotton, uh, organic cotton production, especially from a limited resource uh, situation, is over with. GMOs allow for cotton production to exist in the capability that it does right now. And uh, what we should be focusing on is how do we make GMOs safer? Because I don't know how do we grow market space for a hard production you know, feel of organic cotton. 
we don't have the workforce. And like I'm from an area that grows a lot of cotton and we just do not have a lot of people that work in cotton anymore. And that's why I'm based in the reality that we have to embrace GMOs. And also with climate change, GMOs and the strength and technology, if you can get the seed in the ground, it usually comes up and come up well. So, I mean, I appreciate the GMO for that. Now, I understand the aspects, the negative environmental aspects that may come from the ingredients. And uh, I, I, I'm a huge supporter of uh, sustainable agriculture. However, we got to understand that in this world, we're going to have to have sustainable and we're going to have to have conventional. So, so that we can feed and clothe the rest of our world. Can I ask a quick follow-up? Yes. Is there something that you might like to see biotechnology do for you that would help the, the future of your business? This is going to be selfish for me and from a farmer's perspective, but I feel like biotechnology should be making our inputs cheaper. <laughs> like for as much many years that we've been into this stuff, why is the price of cotton seeds increasing? Like I remember when I was younger, the, a bag, a fifty-pound bag of cotton seeds used to cost less than a hundred dollars. Now, a 50-pound bag of cotton seeds can cost you almost $600. With all this technology and research money that our taxpayers have been paying for in schools like NC State, when can this GMO stuff get cheaper? That's, that's my only rant. elementary school third graders do you do virtual tours because as a new yorker we have no idea what's happening in cotton so this would be extremely interesting to my students you need to send me an email um blackcotton.us at gmail.com and we'll make this information available somewhere but you send me an email we can make it happen i love doing tours um i mean if i can do it from a zoom like you know i got my phone here and i can do that i, I show all around i have not set up a, a professional um, virtual tour situation yet, but I'm looking into it because I've had other people ask me the same question. So thank, thank you. you. No problem. Okay. Ruben, would you like to uh, unmute yourself? Yeah. Thank you. A couple of questions. I think that the first one you probably have already answered. Uh, but do you do any any uh, cotton uh, breeding uh, yourselves in your farm, or do you just buy all the seed from seed providers? I buy all the seeds from seed providers. Most cotton farmers are just buying seeds. Uh, that's less than 1% of them that's doing any breeding. Okay. And then the, the second question, very interesting myself, and you touched uh, on it um, a little bit on your presentation. So have you seen a change in the perception of uh, young people in regard to how uh, agriculture is perceived? Like you, you said that a lot of people associate working agriculture, being a farm worker, et cetera, with you know, something that has a, a stigma associated with it because it's manual labor, et cetera. Now with, uh, Initiatives like yours, have you seen a change in the perspective in the area where you live, where people start to um, appreciate a little bit more uh, the things that an ag business can do? Yeah, I think 
can bring to uh, to your community? That's a very good question, and I can say yes to this uh, question because um, there's this notion that there's a lot of young people are, are sub subscribing to this idea that they can find freedom through farming. There's like you know this this uh, progressive type of uh, I'm farming to find myself or to be able to find the type of freedom that I want from farming. Um, Dr. Monica White she writes about this in this book called Freedom on Farming, so you should check out that book. But she's from University of Wisconsin, a great friend of mine. Uh, but yeah, freedom farmers, and then she's giving a perspective of black people in the agriculture space. But it's happening all over in all spaces where people are finding this freedom, this ideological thinking freedom that's from agriculture, like putting their hands in the soil. There was this notion that for a long time that people didn't want to do this work, but you know, you keep people crammed in home and then you, uh, people wondering what they're eating and they have more time to look up ingredients. People are more excited about knowing exactly where their product's coming from. So I've seen a whole lot of growth. I would say definitely in the last 10 years, you know, I started working in agriculture in 2009 and just farmers markets, you know, organic foods. I mean, the only growing, uh, I think, uh, in this, uh, like what do you call it, niche in agriculture is uh, organic healthy foods. That's the only growing one for a little while. But, you know, so... People are excited about agriculture in ways that's different than the past. And I think, you know, young young people are more excited about it now and the opportunities. Thank you. Thanks. Fred, I think you're next. Yeah, I, I just think we met uh, a long time ago, uh, well, I guess 2019 when we uh, visited. I just was wondering, you know, you were mentioning that your uh, family name is Hillary from that plantation where you ancestors worked. I was just wondering if others from that same plantation ever have family reunions and if any of them connect with you to black cotton. That is a good question. I mean, they have, they used to a lot more um the Tillery, uh, they had the Concerned Citizens of Tillery um, group, and they used to do a lot of organizing with Gary Grant. So they do some type of work in that. They have like a community center with families that are from Tillery. But, you know, uh, people who have last name, their uh, last name Tillery might not be cousins. That's just like everybody who had that last name that was on that plantation. But there's been organ or organizing of like reunions in the past, but I haven't seen one in a while. Thank you. No problem. I have a question. So you farm cotton, soybean, a couple of other things, but you have you run black cotton. Are you? Can you talk about why you're diversified and if you have plans for monetizing or you know developing those crops in a unique way like you have with cotton? Well, you know, I'm a traditional row crop farmer, and it's good to be able to crop rotate. So, you know, uh, we used to do peanuts, but peanuts was so hard. Goodness gracious. And then we got out of it in the 90s. So peanuts was hard, way harder. That's, I remember my cousins than cotton was. But, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, cotton is something that I was passionate about because I spent so much time and I had so much family investment in it. And to be in a cotton business... It's typically a multi-generational approach because all the capital that's required, like to have a combine, to have a marginal builder, you know, it's like a family thing. Like my, if it wasn't for what my grandfather and my uncle did, I don't see how my dad and I could be in the business that way. So it is it's deeper sentimentally to me. That's why I had so much ideas of how to market it. 
because uh, I had such that understanding of what's necessary to be in this business. And I didn't speak about it much, but it's not many black people in the cotton industry. It's not because people don't won't farm it. It's because it's so expensive and tough to be in. So uh, I used the challenges to create an opportunity and why I stayed in it. But in regards to farming other things, I do a lot of that just for crop rotation, soil health purposes. And for the green leafy vegetables, I do that more for a community aspect because uh, we, I helped start a farmer's market in the Garrisburg community. And I couldn't start the market without being a, a participant and helping, you know, walk it how I talk it. Mm -hmm. well, let me just check. Oh, uh, Ruben's just asking what you rotate cotton with. Soybeans. Soybeans. So, um, I, there's a course I'm taking um, in agricultural extension. And um, a few weeks ago, I learned something very interesting that, um, you know, there's usually a lot of talk that the cotton gin, which was introduced back in uh, the 1700s, more like revolutionized the whole cotton industry and then made it more efficient and got a lot more people interested. Uh, but there was also um, a portion of the paper that drew attention to that about what was described as stories that are not told about some of these technological innovations. And in this case, um, the, the, the paper in question actually linked how come a lot of slaves came to the United States, to the cotton industry specifically, mm -hmm. and made the point that um, over the years, uh, more than 80,000 people from you know, Africa and all came purposely for the cotton industry because then they needed people to help process even beyond making use of the gin and all. Um, my question is, when more advanced technologies like um, genetic engineering is actually introduced, and you make the point that uh, farming using GMOs obviously is more efficient and it helps, um, but are there any seeming concerns within the communities that some of these innovations that are helping the cotton industry, for example, may probably have a negative side. For example, how this paper in particular linked um, the whole explosion of the slavery thing with the cotton industry. Do the community sometimes have that sense that these technologies have their positives, but probably there are negatives that we may end up seeing the effects of it years to come? I, I, I appreciate you bringing it up because it's so much complexity to the cotton story and black people in general. Because uh, black people didn't really get out of cotton until the I would say it's beginning in the 70s and definitely by the 80s when the combine came through. You know, when, when we didn't need black people picking cotton or people in general, because white a lot of plenty of white people pick cotton too. I would assume maybe Native Americans. I never really seen Mexicans picking cotton in on the East Coast. But um, you know, once the combines came, there was not the need for as many people to be picking cotton. But a lot of people didn't want to pick cotton because the amount of money you made in picking cotton was so small. So it was like, you know, it was this thing of we don't need people picking the cotton and they don't want to pick it either. So you had that complexity of the combines. So combines was the thing that really took people out, the black people out of the cotton game, more so than GMO technology. The GMO technology was to help the last farmers that were still around to try to make it easier because you're trying to prevent the, um, the weeds pretty much. You're trying to keep that weed coverage down. So, yeah, definitely the combine conversation because people think that black people got out of cotton business pretty much after slavery or after Reconstruction. That's not the case at all. Coming from where we're from in Northampton County, there was tens of thousands of people that was in our area that was picking cotton up to the 80s. And see, I was born in 1986, and I've never seen nobody hand-pick cotton. 
Now I know people, plenty of people around me did, but what I'm saying is by '86. It was pretty much gone. I know by the early 90s where I have early enough memories about everything that's going on on our farm. You know, hand harvesting was done and on our end of the county. And I heard of other, on the other end of the county, there was, where they had this term scrapping, where there's cotton left in the fields after the combine. And the very last of scrapping probably ended in the early 90s and it just people got out of the industry. So I would say more so than GMO technology, I would say the combines is what really got a lot of people out of the cotton industry. And then efficiencies in the cotton gin got, we didn't need less people in cotton gins because of efficiencies. Uh, thanks, uh, Chilari. This, this was a wonderful presentation. I enjoyed it. I'm from Uganda and in high school we used to be told stories about the cotton industry in America old cotton belts, new cotton belts, and this talk actually made me to think about how you see the future of, you know, cotton, like using like historical trends, are you positive about the future of black cotton? Mm. Well, I believe that the, the, on the market side, and I tell people this all the time, in regards to cotton production, I don't feel like I can um, produce cotton any better than my father and grandfather. You know, they, I'm using the same production methods they're doing, and I just don't see that I'm going to be a better farmer in production than my dad or granddad. Now, in regards to marketing, I feel like there's much room for me to be a much better cotton salesman than they ever thought about dreaming and possessing the idea of selling cotton. You know, like right now, I sell cotton pretty much every state in the country, besides Hawaii and Alaska, and they probably don't like it. I don't send. I tell people not. I don't like sending across the shipping costs is intense. But I send it all across the country, and that, I'm sure they couldn't have never thought of a picture selling products, cotton products from my farm all across the country. But the internet allows us to do that, and social media, and the connectivities, hashtags, communities being created through internet. So there's so many opportunities that internet technology gives me. me as a fifth generation over the last past four generations of cotton farming. And I didn't address this, but we were talking about the, the history of Africans being in cotton. Cotton is an old plant. It's like 5,000 years old or more. Uh, in regards to the slave trade, the best cotton producers in the world came from Africa at the time. So it made sense that the smartest traders in the world that's going to America will try to get the best producers of cotton. And it just, it, it was evident, you know, it, even before you know, big money got into agriculture. When you looked at, like, in the 1910s and 1920s, when there was a lot of black people in the cotton industry and farming industries in general, before technology took over, the white white man's, the white farmer's production and the black farmer's production was on on courses, a lot of, just a lot of physical work. Things didn't really, a separation didn't really occur until the technology came into place, and then USDA, or what it was called, um, Farmer Home Association at the time, F, uh, whatever that was called, when they was showing bias on who gets the money to get the technology. That's when the split happened. But you look at back in the 1910s, like I remember talking to Deborah Hammond, she was telling me a long time ago, my grandfather uh, farmed 10 acres of cotton. Sounds about right. How much could one person be able to control even when you're gathering all the help of everybody you know that's helping? It's not gonna be much, but with the 12 row harvesters, 16 row planters. You could do a thousand acres or 10,000 acres if you got two or three or four of those in a crew of them. So that's how guys are doing it now. But the best people who, who was in the cotton industry thousands of years ago came from Africa. 
And so if we just look at the history and what's in our DNA, and we just said and project out and said we have this all this old institutional technology, we need to be able to apply it. Then use your creativity and the intelligence and technology today to go go further. I think what's happening in Egypt and I think what's happening in uh, some of the nations involved with cotton right now, they're doing some very cool, unique uh, things. Like I work with a lady named Tamika Peebles. Uh, she has a company called Seed to Shirt. And she uh, sources her cotton from Africa. So, and, and they have like, you know, the processes in place to get it to her. And so then she could market that her, her clothing is made from African, you know, grown cotton. So I think the opportunity for cotton in the business of cotton is infinite. We have a lot of room of where we can move up in the world in regards to black producers. If we use our um, resources like the technology around us and definitely the soft skills technology like this, the social media, we have to learn how to market ourselves. And for a long time, black businesses, we was limited by, hey, the store would not put our stuff on the shelf. But with the Internet, we don't need to be on the shelf. You know what I mean? The people go buy from our storefront. That's the shelf. So now that we don't have those limitations, I mean, yeah, it helps to be in our shelf. But sometimes it can hurt you to be on the shelf. I don't want to be on Walmart shelf. Because for what it would require for me to be in Walmart, I'm basically an employee. I'm working real hard. They driven me down on that price, you know? And so it wouldn't be enjoyable for me. So I created my own shelf. Like as like people like to say, we create our own table. We don't have to worry about seating somebody at the table when you create your own table. And that's what we're doing with black cotton. We don't have to worry about somebody saying, hey, you can sit at our table and, and learn what we know. No, I'm creating my own table, I'm creating my own business, and I'm looking out for my community. So that's why I feel like the future and uh, what we're doing right now is is this is us creating our own power through what we can do currently. Thank you. Um, so you mentioned that like some of the earlier cotton farmers had about 10 acres of cotton, and I think if I remember correctly, you have a 175-acre cotton farm. Well, we raise about 50 acres. We, we do about 125 uh, acres of, uh, of of crops in general, and we do about 75 acres of soybean, 50 acres of cotton. 50 acres of cotton. So um, I was part of the cohort that spent um, some time in eastern North Carolina this past summer, and a lot of the farmers we spoke to talked about this need to keep expanding and increasing mm -hmm. their acreage. And if you weren't increasing your acreage, you might as well get out of the business. Get big or get out. That's what they call it, right? Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. I was curious if you could speak to that. Is that something that you are also considering about increasing your acreage, or do you feel like you won't be able to run black cotton the way that you want to if you have to increase and then... You know, I don't want to limit myself and say that I, I don't want to get bigger. But I think it's about efficiency. You know, it's not about how many acres you, you're farming, but how much you're making per acre. You know, like, if, if, if it requires me to stretch myself out, you know, to lose, lose money up to farming 500 acres, I'd rather make money on each acre at the smaller size. And that's a very popular thing, but I think a lot of schools is getting out of the idea of get big or get out. I, I forgot which conference was the name of the professor, but he is a dairy farmer, and dairy farming is extremely tough business. And most um, most dairy farmers feel like you gotta keep getting bigger, you gotta keep getting bigger. But you know, you can't get but so big before it's like, hey, we don't want none of this milk. So what it's all about now, I feel like in current modern farming is how to be efficient. Hey, we have this much milk. What products can we make? Can we make ice cream? Can we make the best custard? Can we market this custard differently? You know, it's about making more off an acre than how many acres. Now, I mean, I, now we're in a school where a lot of big farm, you know, BTO kids go to, and I, I appreciate big farm culture. But uh, 
it's better for us to make more on our acres than us to keep spending because land is limited. It's finite. So then you had to fight over land. Look what people are doing about their app tillable. You know, the, 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 the place where they you can bid on rented land. Farmers are not liking it. But that's where we are. We're a competitive place. Everybody can't get bigger. And then one other thing is all the tech companies, they don't make tech for small uh, small farmers. I mean, like John Deere don't make two-row cotton combines anymore. You know, they want the farmers to get bigger, but they have to also understand that farmers have to be more efficient too. So if we want to put pressure on anybody, let's put pressure on these companies like the tech companies like John did to say, hey, continue to serve smaller farmers because it, it makes the smaller farmers be more efficient instead of making smaller farmers take on more risk to then, you know, maybe lose the farm. What has been your experience in your local area with non-African-American farmers and what do they think of your business model and your approach? Well, in regards to my family, we have good relationships with people on um, that farm all alongside us, you know, by seeds and, you know, people who farm right aside us. So I feel like for now in our region, we have a culture of people in public space treating each other with respect. Now, people can think anything they want to think behind pub, um, private doors. And I'm not going to say some people think differently than me. I may think differently than them, but I think in my community, we do a good job of showing each other respect in public. And that's white, black, or any type of culture. So I, I thank you, Rono Valley Farmers and Community, for making a space and environment where people of different cultures that a farm can be able to coexist. Now, I can't say that for everywhere else, but for our communities like that. So uh, I'm looking at the picture of you with Governor Cooper and thinking about what you said about how the USDA and subsidies change, you know, the level of disparity between, you know, different farmers in the, in the 80s. So I'm wondering what you think government's role has been and should be going forward in this industry. Well, government role is very important because we need those subsidies to secure our food system. You know, if we don't, like, if we have issues with immigration, we have issues in our military, I imagine an insecure food system in America. So we absolutely have to have the government in place making securing that as subsidies to make sure our food security secure straight. Now, do I feel like there's biases shown, been shown? Yes. And I feel like there's still a long ways that the USDA could go in regards to making sure that that bias doesn't affect farmers who does not look like the biggest farmers in the county. You know, I feel like farming should be a place where uh, it's a community, because all farmers are supporting our nation. All of them, they're all doing good work to keep us food secure. But we got to make sure we show respect to all farmers. So making sure that the, the, the government support is fairly, you know, equitable. And sometimes fairly is not equal because typically if, if it's equal, the big farmers get way more. And that's been the thing. So sometimes equitable may be giving some people who've been neglected for a long time a bone on this because big farmers going to get there. They're going to find their space no matter what. So. And that's not me not caring about big farms because some people look, consider me a big farm. And like, I'm the smallest cotton farm I know, but I farm 50 acres of cotton. Some people farm 0.1 acre in their garden. It's a big difference. So it's all about skill, and I'd say we should respect every perspective. Okay, I have another question. Um, sure. uh, you talked a lot about pride and 
trying to um, show uh, other farmers, particularly black farmers, that um, you know you can take pride in cotton and building up this culture that you know, has existed for a while. Um, so, how or what advice do you have for someone who isn't currently a farmer who would like to get into cotton farming and you know? Um, One again, farm, get any kind of farming, but cotton farming. I think a good way is start following farmers and farming communities and farming groups, agriculture groups. I mean, going to your your, your cooperative extension, you that's a good way to plug into your networks. You know, if you're if you're watching this video right now and you are completely outside of agriculture, find out your county extension office and start there. Meet your extension agent, and that person will give you a good idea of what community ag you know groups exist. And where's a starting point for where your journey may begin? But in regards to getting into the cotton industry, the truth of the matter is, if you want to get into the cotton industry, you need to be in the row crop business. You know, if you're not in the row crop business, it's hard to get into the cotton industry. Because, like, just like a, a average black person say, I want to become a cotton farmer. If your daddy and granddaddy want cotton farmers, you 99% chance you're not going to be a cotton farmer. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible to get into cotton farming, but it takes a lot of capital to do that. You know, it, 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 and, and to get that the asset, the, uh, to, the, uh, to get that type of capital, access that capital, you need to get started. So I should say you need to know what the agricultural communities is that you can, the groups, and then start to fill yourself into the agricultural world, get into row cropping, maybe do some soybeans. Then you move up to cotton. But that's the truth that like if you're really a farmer right now, you're trying to get into cotton, or you know, you thinking about cotton. It's not a straight shot there. Unless you got a uh, million dollars. If you got a million dollars, I mean, still it'll be a, a thin, you know, resource enterprise. But if not, you're going to have to network and you're going to take some time and building relationships. Agriculture is, is to me, it's going to always be a family and relationship built business. You know, North Carolina, our agriculture industry is so strong because it's built upon our families. And these families know each other and they, they network among with each other. You know, it's a small community, but a powerful community. We're the number one industry because all our families together and what we want is best for our state and our communities, our farms. That's what we do in North Carolina. So I'm, I'm an, advocate, an advocate of North Carolina agriculture. Got to be uh, NC. There you go. It looks like Zach has a question. Do you want to unmute yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, hello. Thanks for the talk. Um, I just had some, uh, just a quick question actually on the production side. Um, so I, I've got, I'm advising a student uh, on, uh, who's working on cover crops and she's worked, she's got some data on from field trials of cover crops with cotton systems. And I just wanted to, you know, basically ask you from your perspective the kind of uh, calculations or thoughts you would engage in to decide whether or not to do cover cropping. And just to preamble it a little bit, and this is not like advice or, you know, extension advice of any sort, but just what we were seeing in the data is that it, uh, with like, we were looking at like winter vetch, the trial, the field trial data has winter, winter wheat, um, hairy vetch, and clover uh, cover crops. And some of those crops could take, in, in essence, take like three to five years from our calculations to, to sort of reap the benefits of them. And so there's a there's an upfront cost to doing cover cropping, and then it takes like three to five years to reap the benefits of it, which means it's an investment. 
and you need the financing maybe to, to finance that investment. And just from your perspective and like the farmers um, in your community, uh, other cotton farmers in your community, you know, what would it take to, to make that sort of investment? And are there financing limitations that impede, um, you know, engaging in more, more practices like that? Well, I would tell you, um, when you're studying agriculture and you, you're thinking out ways of producing better, everything on paper that you write out sounds pretty cool, right? And, you know, you could do the numbers, crunching numbers, and you can look at the numbers. But what's very hard to measure is effort. And, you know, when you finish a cotton crop at the end of the year, think about all the effort that you put into that crop beginning from the spring all the way to the end of the year. So usually by the end of my cotton crop season, I'm done. I take like at least a, I try to take a month break of doing stuff. I am so worn out. So then to even think about, all right, now I've done this, let's get in the cup, you know, cover crops. I, I can, even if I could afford it, which, and when you're doing the financing of cover crops, it can get quite expensive. Even if I could afford it, I might just not have the energy to do it because I know I need the break. And that's not, that's something that we don't talk enough about in farming is the seasonality of farmers needing rest. We can't wear ourselves into the ground by these pro, uh, production um, predictions we are making. We are saying, hey, if I did this extra and I did this extra, it will make my crop you know, 5% better. But maybe the cost of the effort ain't worth that extra 5%. And sometimes with cover crops, you could do all the good work and uh, have stuff, your soil very active, have a good crop coming yet next year, and you're saying, yes, I did it. The cover crop paid off, hurricane come down, tear it all up. Right. I, I mean, and it, that's what I'm saying, that effort, it's a big investment. When you say it's an investment, people don't measure effort. I do, because I farm, you know what I mean? And nobody measure it but me. Typically, people, when they, when they try to measure farmers, they measure acres, how much money they have and how much money they're making off the crop. I, work, I measure, is this person healthy? Are they limping around? How, do we even ask that to ourselves? When, look, think, look at our farmers. Are they overweight? Are they underweight? How's their nutrition? You know, I think about these certain things, you know. So I know I might not give you the question, the answer you're looking at, but it's just a perspective you might not think of. It might not be worth the effort. It might that's, be worth that's it. That's exactly the perspective. That's super useful. Thank you. Very no good. problem. Okay, any last questions? Okay, it's time to wrap up anyway. So if everyone... Thanks, everyone. Thank you.